Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Picture this, a world where all workers, regardless of age, gender, race or cultural background, were accorded equal dignity and respect, where a system of labour rights enshrined the right to a livable minimum wage for all. I know. The stuff of dreams, right? Among the most marginalised in the United States, domestic workers are integral to everyone's lives. And yet they're unaccustomed to both fair pay and fair play, having little to nothing in the way of basic labour rights. With no minimum wage, no overtime, no workers' compensation, and often subject to discrimination and wage theft, many are drawn from migrant communities, and most of them are women. And it's this vulnerability, this complete lack of leverage that calls for a united front when working for their recognition. Luckily, there are organisations trying to remedy this situation, and our guest today works with one of these. She's been involved in activism her entire working life and is currently the Communications Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. The NDWA has over 60 affiliates throughout the United States and looks after over 250,000 workers. This Changemaker Chat is with Jennifer Dillon. Today we talk to Jennifer about attempts to create a cultural shift around how these workers are perceived. She gives us a picture of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and its campaigns for the working rights of people working in our homes. These are the women that take care of kids, clean houses, care for the elderly and those with disabilities. They're primarily women of colour and many of them are immigrants. And because they work in people's homes, they are extremely isolated. We discuss how you connect with these workers, how you organise them, and what is deep organising. We look at the best means of building points of connection, both digitally and face-to-face on the ground. And we touch on issues of intersectionality, such as immigration, climate crisis, gender inequity, and both language and racial justice. This episode has all the important issues. Donald Trump does not want you to listen to this episode. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Jennifer, you do extraordinary things with the, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. What do you think, when you reflect on your work, what is it that you do that makes you a change maker, someone who makes social change? The work that I do with uh, the National Domestic Workers Alliance and particularly with the domestic workers movement, I think the thing that I think about in making change is really reimagining what we want, right? Like creating a new vision for the work that we want to do. Domestic workers 
are often, particularly as women of color, they're often trying to have to reimagine a reality. And so I think being able to be a part of that is really powerful. And that I feel is like how I enjoy and sort of feel resilient in making change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess your role in that in particular is given, like I, I hear you say, talk about vision, you do a lot of the communications work for that group. How, I mean, what specifically in terms of being a person who helps construct communications for such an interesting and powerful evolving movement of, of low-wage vulnerable workers, like how, how is that a role? In, or like what is the specifics of that role in making social change? So the core work that we do as the, within the communication strategy is really shifting the perceptions of domestic workers, um, how people see and value domestic work and then the women that do that work. And so with that kind of guideline, we really try to think about like all the different ways that domestic work shows up in our work um, in our reality, in our, in our culture. So whether it's something that we're seeing in, um, in the news or is it something that we're also seeing on TV or in um, movies or it's even the way that people are being thinking about domestic work overall. And so uh, working with a lot of different uh, the organizers, with the policy teams, um, with a lot of different program folk, really trying to sort of re- like I said before, reimagine sort of how domestic work is sort of seen and perceived and really sort of shift how people, how people are engaging with it. I'm keen for you to go back to the beginning of the story a little and, and mm-hmm. take us through some key moments. You know, what's, what's your origin story? Like, where did it all come from? So I've been doing this sort of social justice work for close to 20 years. Started professionally when I got out of college. And can I ask, why was it why did you want to do it professionally when you got out of college? Yeah, so the story that I usually talk about or sort of tell is um, I actually learned about community work. I, so I went through domestic study um, in Chicago. I was doing a liberal arts education in Wisconsin, and I was there in Chicago for about four months. And we learned about everything about Chicago. One of the things, it was like a tract, uh, was on community organizing. Never heard of it. The, so the Sololinsky story? That- yes, so it was Sololinsky. And so it was talked about Sololinsky sort of like organizing um, how that sort of shaped Chicago. And then we actually started to talk to different organizers within the, the, the city. And we were talking about power essentially, and particularly power, what it means for black communities, for brown communities. And that was just life-changing for me. Like I had never heard about community organizing. I was very interested in doing work, um, particularly with black communities. And, you know, this is a, this is a podcast, Jennifer, so some mm-hmm. of our listeners would benefit from knowing that you're not white like me. Yes. <laughs> so I am a black woman. And so being able to sort of situate myself within talking about power and sort of my community talking about power, I think that was really, really, it was really amazing. And so I actually was, my major was cultural anthropology. I was planning to go to grad school, decided I didn't want to because this is where doing community organizing, that's where I wanted to do and explore that. Can I ask, why do you think it landed so deeply? Like, why do you think it was so life-changing? Others would have, would have heard about power and gone, yeah, but for you... It shifted your whole life. Why do you think? I think, you know, and like I was saying before, kind of that's the kind of usual origin story, but I think adding to the fact that I have a very strong, there's a lot of strong women in my family, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, all these um, black women who've lived generations of being, you know, really sort of trying to explore what it means about being black in America, being a woman in America, really having to really fight for your self-worth. And so having that intrinsically, you know, in my life, 
And then being able to sort of see that it wasn't just our experiences, it wasn't just my experiences as individually dealing with desegregation and, you know, in my community, it wasn't because of anything individual, the fact that my family was poor or, you know, that I experienced these things, but it was part of a systemic structure. That was really important to kind of understand that and then sort of connect that then to like, okay, I understand why this is happening, but then what do I do, right? And so I think organizing, being able to sort of collectively together find a solution, that was just life-changing. Wow. So, so you're now clear that you want to do something different. Yeah. So what do you do? You dumped grad school. So your parents would have been thrilled. Yeah, yeah they weren't they weren't that excited, but they were <laughs> but they're supportive. That's <laughs> been that way. I'm still explaining to my mom like what organizing is. The fact that Barack Obama was an organizer um, helped. So right after you going through that course, I actually stayed in Chicago and I just I looked for jobs. I had also applied right before then to the Center for Third World Organizing, which is a training organization dedicated to training um, people of color as organizers. So I went into their program and worked uh, there right after grad school. It was like a six-week internship. And then I just looked for a job in Chicago, community organizing. And very naively just like sent my resumes out and then find, found a place um, and worked at a community organization um, in, on the west side of Chicago for six years, working with Black and Puerto Rican and Mexican folks, um, really trying to make you know, um, change within their neighborhood. Yeah, what was it called? It was called Blocks Together. It's still around today. And so was the model of organising, just so I can understand, was it door-to-door? Was it in little institu- smaller institutions? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was turf organising. It was very, um, the organisation I think was, was started on a very Solinsky kind of model where you organising door-to-door, um, talking to people, finding out what they want to change, and then you do that. We actually evolved the organization where it wasn't just, you know, organizing for stop signs, but it was actually organizing for systemic change of, like, why city services, for example, weren't coming to black and brown neighborhoods, and how do we change that? Or looking at issues around housing or education or even um, for folks that were formerly incarcerated. So it started out really small, but we tried to really insert a gender and racial justice lens into that. And where did that interest in inserting a gender and racial and I guess a economically systemic, where did that come from? Was that from you? Was that in discussion? I think it was partly being able to sort of learn the lessons that I was learning with at the Center for Thorough Organizing. And then particularly knowing that like organizing a stop sign wasn't enough when you're talking about, you know, people of color, communities of color. There's a lot more structural changes that needed to happen. And to even think about like, we weren't just going to the aldermen or to the sort of city council for these things, but it was the lack that the, the community was being dismissed and ignored by the uh, city council for because of like who they were, because of being black and brown, because of like being poor, because of the fact that they there was a really structural system in Chicago that made this possible. So being able to have that break break that open for me, and then particularly you know work with the leaders of that community to sort of understand. And it wasn't that people didn't understand, but they never had a, a sort of a way to talk about it in that way. Mm. So being able to have that that conversation, I, I felt like we really broke open a lot of that work. Yeah. Wow. And so then after six years, you decided to shift. Tell me about that. I was interested in, I think at the core of all this was like really sort of thinking about power, right? And so I was at the organization Blocks Together, you know, when it's really small grassroots, you're doing everything. And so I was doing organizing, I was doing training, I was doing fundraising, doing communications work. And I felt that 
what was missing for me or what I saw is that there wasn't actually a lot of uh, people who were doing fundraisers, um, fundraising um, and nonprofits that were people of color. We weren't talking about money and the way that um, we should and thinking about that. And, you know, again, a lot of the things around money or thinking about money, that's a lot of power underneath that. And so I felt like I wanted to just have a specialization in, in talking about fundraising and like being able to really think about like how are we actually generating more grassroots dollars for nonprofits. And so I started doing fundraising for a while. So where was that? In Chicago too? Or? Yeah, it was with the Interfaith Worker Justice. So oh. it was a um, national organization, but based in Chicago. So I was there for about three or four years um, doing that work. Wow. So tell us, what did you learn? How do we change our fundraising strategy? One of the things that I learned was that more than anything, it's low-wage people or poor people who give the most money, right? But we don't ask them, right? And we don't have a culture of asking or sort so of we feel seeing. guilty, this sort of exactly. guilt that they couldn't possibly, but actually... We disempower people in, in right. doing so. And I would always talk about, like when I was doing trainings or even thinking about it, is that like for most of our folks, their choices are being taken away. Why would we actually take another choice away by not actually seeing that that actually fundraising or giving to social causes is actually part of movement work, right? Totally. I mean, organised people organise money, right? Exactly. In the community organising tradition. So you started with organised people and then you moved to organised money. And I think that gave way to sort of like organised, I guess, like information or sort of thinking about like how we kind of from there, um, the work started to think about like communication strategy. Like at the, at the core, a lot of the work I do is just trying to think about strategy overall. Mm. Mm. So you're at the Interfaith Worker Justice Movement. You, you experiment and really toy with this idea of money, having also organized people. Then where do you take it? I went to the Restaurant Opportunity Center, Rock United. Um, so I was there a couple of years as their development director. Mm-hmm. doing similar work. And I, you know, it's kind of funny. I fell into a lot of labor organizations, but I didn't come to yeah. the work thinking that I'm going to work for, quote unquote, kind of like labor organizing. Yeah. But it gave me a, like, a, coming from that perspective, it gave me a lot of real respect for sort of like how we, how people associate themselves with work. And what did you learn in that space? I mean, people who don't work in the, the labor space, I think, have a lot of stereotypes in their heads mm-hmm that are probably about unions and bullies and they're not people who look like you. They're not mm-hmm. people even who look like me, even mm-hmm. though most, most workers are mm-hmm. women. What did you learn about the potential of the work union labour association space? I think in that particular space is learning that even though we are working in a specific sector, the universality of the issue is what moves people. So thinking about restaurant work, you know, the way that Rock has talked about it or talked about it when I was there was that everyone eats out, right? And so even if we are, and, and many people have been restaurant workers at some point in their lives, right? So even if we are not necessarily identify with a restaurant worker, we we're part of the industry, whether we want to be or not. And so that means that there's more at stake for us because we have, we, if we're part of that industry, we, we can actually help shape it. Mm. And that means actually being in support and, and, and allies with restaurant workers to have better working conditions. And so I felt that that was a real turning point with me about thinking about like, oh, we are, even if we don't sort of think of ourselves as being part of the sector, we're part of this economy. And so there's a stake in it for all of us. I guess I'm curious, so when did the connection with the National Domestic Workers Alliance then 
get drawn for you? I had heard of them while I was doing work with Rock and other spaces. What did you What did you heard? That they just, I mean, I used, would see presentations of some of their organizers. Actually, one of their um, organizers who's there now, Barbara, she's a former domestic worker. She's a, a national organizer now. I would see her in um, different just spaces or conferences and I was just impressed with the work that their their race, their gender analysis, like it just was very interconnected to how they sort of moved and organized. And mm-hmm. I was just really impressed with it. Ijin Poo, the executive director, actually called me. Um, she had knew of my work through another friend of mine and called and asked me to apply for their communications director position. I've always been interested in how we think about narrative. And so it was really, it was just an interesting opportunity that I wanted to take on. Mm. So at this point, I, I really want to sort of just unpack for, mm-hmm. for our listeners, I guess, and for me, a greater understanding of the, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Can you tell us the history? Like, where did, where did this idea come from? Sure. So the actual, the National Alliance has been around for about 12 years, but they were doing work or the the organizing domestic workers have been doing, um, been going on for Many decades. I think particularly in this iteration, Aijin Pu, who's, the, who's one of the co-founders of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, along with other domestic worker workers and then other organizers, they started this national alliance partly because they were doing similar work in a lot of different spaces. But we're thinking again about building power. Like how do we, from a very aggregated, isolated, very individual kind of sector, how do we actually create a bigger uh, base of power. And indeed, like, so for some in a place like Australia, they might be less familiar with mm-hmm. the type of work than, say, in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about people who work in people's homes. Mm-hmm. Like you could sort of couldn't get more isolated as a worker. Tell us a little bit about what, um, uh, what the kind of people that you organise. Yeah, so domestic workers are nannies, so the, the women that take care of our kids, house cleaners who take care of our homes, and then home care workers who take care of people with disabilities and then also seniors to help them live more independent lives. And so these are uh, women, mostly women of colour, mostly immigrant women who, like you said, they work inside people's homes, very isolated alone, doing a lot of the work that we, that's culturally and so um, from a society standpoint that we sort of deem as women's work or that we deem as work that is kind of invisible. Mm. Um, because it is literally behind closed doors and, and people's private homes and it's work that's been been done historically um, in, the, in the U.S. historically, um, it has a deep legacy of slavery actually and servitude to it and then the women who have done this work has been primarily women of color and immigrant women. I'm interested in understanding better some of the organizing strategy like I mean I'm sure our listeners are going how do you organize people who who are completely isolated into people's homes how do you even find them how do you connect with them how do you possibly organize this seems to be the most impossible workers to organize how do you how's this union been able to be built? So I'm sort of union. How has this worker association yeah. been able to be built? <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So I think one of it is one of the base things that we've done is really, you know, there's no shop. There's no like shop that you go into organize workers. And again, like you said, it's it's um it's not aggregated. And so organizers have been, you know, going to playgrounds, you know, where um nannies are taking care of kids or uh, grocery stores or laundry mats or 
different things like that. Basically being able to understand sort of like how they're moving bus stops, you know, um, and so being able to like really think about sort of like where domestic workers are and then being able to talk to them about like, I work for this organization and we're working about trying to get, you know, better rights for domestic workers or for domestic workers to even know their rights. And so it kind of starts from there, mm. uh, being able to be where they are and then um, have a point of connection about coming to a meeting to learn something and then sort of connect their story to a bigger um, a bigger movement. Mm. And that's where it starts. And a lot of the work that I do with our communications work is to really kind of shape and have people understand whether they're domestic workers, whether they're employers, whether they're people who want to support that work to understand domestic work overall. Because a lot of people, because of the, you know, the kind of work it is that it's kind of on the margins and not actually within the, you know, the center of a lot of the work that we do, um, we have to kind of educate them on that. And then, I mean, I imagine, because in the back of my head, I'm thinking, but do you use digital strategies? Like how, yeah. how, how does that play? So there's, so I've talked about sort of like the field, that's like the base thing, but we've been doing a lot of digital organizing as well. Um, and the last, I would say, last five years is really trying to understand like, what does it mean to organize workers online? And so some of it has, so there's been sort of like two ways that we've been thinking about it. One is that the, the future of work has also just changed where a lot, there's a lot more gig workers. We talk about domestic workers being kind of like the first gig workers because that was always the way that people had to sort of get work um, is always through multiple employers, sort of piecemeal, sort of putting together to make a paycheck. Um, and they're stu- still doing that online. And so we've been able to organize where there's platforms of online um, domestic workers, whether they're the house cleaners or nannies mm. um, or even home care workers. So that's just one and that's a continuous thing. And then it's also just being able to have um, spaces where they're engaging online anyway. There's nanny groups, there's house cleaners that are already kind of talking in, in Facebook or we've created these Facebook groups where it's first people connecting about like, I have this issue. This is the issue that I'm having with my work. How do I, you know, kind of approach this? I I guess to reflect on those two different strategies, right? Like Mm. it's almost like in the world of social change, people operate in two camps. Mm. There's the people who think that it should all be face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And then and I'm character, I'm setting up straw men, you know, or, or should be face-to-face or actually digital's the go. What's your experience of actually the sort of power of their interconnection and what are the strengths and weaknesses of each strategy in the way in which, you know, you, you guys have organised? I think we, you know, what's interesting, I think, in all of our work is that we're always trying to, you know, domestic work was traditionally, when you think about sort of like worker organizing, no one wanted to touch it because it was hard. It was too hard, mm. right? There was all these different sort of elements to it that like made it like really uh, tough to organize. And so we took it as a challenge to be like, well, that means that you have to organize in a lot of different layers, right? It's not just like face-to-face or just digital. It's, it has to be both because that's where the way people are showing up. And that's the way that people are engaged. And so I think that um, that's just been our overall approach. In terms of sort of like, I guess, challenges or things that have been great is that with just having people face-to-face, we can, you know, again, sort of like have that connection, but that only goes so far if we're actually in those cities. You know, we have organizers on the ground in those cities. Digitally, um, domestic workers, there's about 2.5 million domestic workers um, in the U.S. 
Um, they're everywhere. They're in urban areas. They're in rural areas. Um, they're in places where we might not actually have affiliates and organizations. And so digitally, that means that we can touch any domestic worker and, and contact them. And it doesn't have to be where they're going into an organization, but that they can actually have connection. And so that just gives us more uh, ways to organize a population that was deemed, you know, non-organizable. And how has the organization changed over time? So you, you talk about decades of actual very distributed organizing and mm -hmm. then the formation of a national a national alliance 12 years ago. Since its formation nationally, like how has this space shifted? Like how has it become stronger? Well, I think it's it's been a lot of different ways. Like our, our work has, um, and our organization has grown exponentially. So we started off um, very small, and now we have over 60 affiliates across the, the, um, the country. We are organizing around 250,000 workers. 250,000. So both digitally and then in person. And so, Do they pay dues? Yes, there, we do have a membership structure, and so there is a dues-paying structure, and we're still developing that. So we have grown to be able to really have an impact on organizing domestic workers, and we've grown, like I said, exponentially with the work that we're doing. You know, domestic workers, it's, we're not just sort of situated within labor, but it's, you know, immigration, there's mm. gender equity, racial justice, and so... We're trying to really have that intersection because uh, domestic workers are intersectional with who they are. Um, we're trying to sort of look at them as a whole person. And so we've developed a lot of different campaigns and programs that deal with that. So whether it's um, future of work, like looking at how tech is changing work, or whether it's immigration, or even thinking about, you know, um, we work very closely with a lot of different organizations around sexual harassment. Um, so looking at sort of all these different ways that um, domestic workers are um, facing challenges and we try to sort of really match that. So I'm interested in your insights, like mm -hmm. as to what the organisation has learned in trying, because it's a difficult, you're working in a difficult space, not just because workers are treated poorly, mm -hmm. often isolated, but also even when you bring your, the community of, of predominantly women together, there are, um, there are different racial identities mm -hmm. and nothing in life is smooth. What have you learnt about how to, like what strategies have seemed to have worked when it's come to working in such an intersectional space? I think it's important to do, we call it just like deep organizing, where it's, we're mobilizing and organizing domestic workers, but we're doing um, a lot of leadership development so that people are seeing their similarities, but also honoring their, their differences. You know, it's a very diverse sector and base. And so doing a lot of work to kind of talk about, you know, different issues that have come up in terms of like, you know, we, we have a really strong core around language justice. There's a lot of um, domestic workers who their first language is not English. And so in a lot of different languages, we talk about um, in terms of language justice and what that means for empowerment for, for workers. We talk about anti-blackness and sort of what that looks like within, you know, within our space. And so there's a lot of things that we naturally sort of like are coming together on, but we do the work to make sure that there's a real strong coalition. And mm. so we don't, we're not putting people together just assuming that that's going to, just because they're <laughs> identified as domestic workers, everyone's going to, you know, which yeah. I mean, I think they do at a core, at but it's level, like yeah. we're doing like the deep political education work that is required to have a sustainable movement. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and I guess when I hear you say deep organizing, I, I, I guess I'm trying to under, uh, uh, interpret that meaning things like lots of ones 
into one work, lots of people exploring their background stories, where they've come from with their political analysis, political opinions, but like locating that in your own experience and people really having a sense of that, of a sense of each other in that space is 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 that the kind of thing you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so definitely one-on-ones. Definitely we have a political educational training that we have uh, leaders go through, whether it's like within a curriculum that is um, within their own organization or we have like a national cohort of people that are go through this really kind of year-long leadership development training. And then they kind of, it's like generative. So they're like taking that stuff back to their organization so they can sort of do that more. We have a big assembly every two years where it's um, hundreds of domestic workers coming together from all different parts of the country. We have worker, uh, uh, what we call a worker council of like the different um, industries. So we have a house cleaner council, nanny council and a home care council, all from, you know, representing domestic workers from all over the country within that industry. And they're coming together to sort of actually like, what does it look like if nannies had better working conditions? You know, what does it look like to, you know, in this, in all the nuances that come from that. And so we're making sure that when we say that we're centering domestic workers, we're trying, we're modeling that so Mm -hmm. that they're really informing all of the work along the way. And then working together, like the fact that like, we have really strong, um, domestic, the, our leaders have strong bonds is because they've walked the walk and doing a lot of work together, whether it's like this sort of deep work or even working on campaigns or actions and different mm-hmm. things like that. And so some of the work that you, that you are all doing is, is at some level it's not, not new in the United mm-hmm. States. So there's, there's been a, a glorious tradition of, of, of movements like the United Labor Unions mm-hmm. and ACORN and, and, so, and some of that work. How has the domestic workers, um, how, how have you both sort of, I guess, learnt, you know, how do you stand on the shoulders of that sort of work, but also how do you differentiate yourself from some of that work? I think it's, you know, we definitely, um, we look to the history overall of the labour movement in terms of sort of what has been, what has worked and what have been the challenges, what has worked in terms of, um, really building like a, a, a worker identity um, and sort of what did that looks like for um, building power and what does that look like to stepping outside of just the labor movement so that we're looking at electoral power. We're looking at all these different kinds of ways that we're really changing both our economy and our democracy. And so I think that's a really important thing to, I think, learn from what has worked well and then also what has been a challenge. Um, and what do you, are there any particular insights in terms of things that have, you've taken from the past? That's a good question. I think that to be able to, I think one insight, and I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but being able to sort of have kind of what I was talking about earlier of like multiple stakeholders, being able to really organize them so that not only just having a worker base, but being able to have like other people organizing them together. So for for domestic workers, it's important for not only organizing them, but actually organizing employers, right? Um, And then organizing other people who sort of have some sort of... um, I usually call them sort of adjacent to the movement. So whether they've experienced care somehow or they even can understand our sort of value system, you know, and to understand in terms of how we, how we're interacting with feminism or sort of like racial justice, being able to have this like core stakeholders so that we're moving together. And I think mm-hmm. the labor movement has done that in some ways. In some ways, I think that it's been limited because it's, again, sometimes not intersecting with other kinds of movement and other kind of folks. It's interesting. So a collab- like the importance of collaboration, of coalition mm-hmm. building, probably in place and, and beyond, has that become an 
important part of your work now? Yeah, I think it's been essential because one of the things is that um, we can change policy. We can, you know, have our work on the front page of some, some, you know, newspaper. What we're all trying to do is really trying to change the culture of how people understand this work, right? And so it's a really important to really look at sort of like how people's bias around sort of domestic work and women of color and really being able to shift that. And so that takes a lot of organizing of people and really sort of shifting sort of like their their value system. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you what may seem a strange question. So bear with me, Mm -hmm. which is so, you know, we're now quite clearly in a climate change emergency, Mm -hmm. right? Or whatever phrase you want to use, like there's clearly a problem in terms of human intervention and the fact that the planet's heating up. You're working with some of the the, the poorest workers um, doing it really tough in, in the US. I guess I'm curious, often it's described that when, when workers are in difficult situations, um, the connection to climate change is hard to make. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, has an issue like climate change come up inside of your organisation? Like, how are you working with that? We're talking about it and it's definitely something that, that we're, I think we're working um, with other organisations that are sort of deeper in this work. But I feel the one, some of the ways that it's come up is that we know that climate change is, is very much related to migration, right? How people migrate and how people move. And that has been recorded in terms of of how um, migration is really being impacted by climate change. And so we know that that is being affected by, you know, domestic workers who are mostly, a lot of them are immigrant um, women. Um, we also know that at climate change, um, the most affected people are usually at the bottom, right? So that's low-wage workers, um, it's people in vulnerable sort of... Um, you won't be able to build the levees. Right. The, the rich will build the levees, yeah? Right. And so it's so it's it's being able. We know at the core that this is a, it's impacting everyone, obviously, but we know that it's impacting a sector like domestic work in a very specific way. Yeah. And so we're we're working with other folks that are kind of like moving this as their core um, to kind of think about like what this looks like, and then also knowing that like again, climate change is such a such a, a big thing that knowing that like how we're sort of a, impacting our like our labor policies, our immigration policies. Um, that that actually having a revisioning of that is also going to impact sort of how we think about climate change. Important also um, for those who are in the climate movement to understand that unpacking this inside when you're working with people in an industrial or work context is not always easy. It's not that it's not being done, but it's... Yeah, and I think that's just sort of like, that's that's one of the things that I think that as a as people working in this kind of work, we continue to need to to think about and learn is that like, we're all impacted by a lot of different issues, but we sometimes uh, really put ourselves in these these different groups, you know, yeah. and different movements. And like, there's intersections, and we have to make those connections because they're that's how they're they're impacting people, right? Yeah. It's not just like bad working conditions is just impacting people who you know a certain group of people is actually affecting a lot of people. It's affecting women, so there's there's a gender lens. It's affecting immigration, so there's immigration lens. Yeah. And so you have to think about that way, or you're not actually going to make really substantial change. Yeah, that's exactly right. And thinking about the fact that we've all got multiple identities and how these multiple 
identities then intersect with our capacity to act and what we act on and how they fit together. Like, it sounds abstract, but I think that that's kind of where we're at at the moment to be able to break the silos that we place ourselves in sometimes. I think sometimes as movement folks, we expect people, yeah, to operate out of one identity and that's not how I, I'm, I'm thinking always as like a queer black woman, you know what I yeah. mean? Like I'm, there's not a time where I'm just like putting one hat on. Yeah, how can you remove bits of yeah. yourself? But we sort of invite people to. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that I think that we're continuing trying to kind of like interrogate because domestic workers are always coming in at these multi-level things. And so we're trying to sort of being able to like, how do we actually move with that sort of um, level of um, intersectionality? And that's just a practice that we're also continuing to learn and try to build on Mm. ourselves. And that we can all learn from too, right? So my final question, I guess, is you've been doing this for a while, yeah? Lots of organising, lots of different places. If... um, so I call you experienced, you know, you're experienced, experienced, you've experienced. Jennifer was going to have a chat with young Jennifer about the most amazing and so the most important insightful lesson that if only you had known a little bit more about then when you're starting off in, in Chicago, what's, what's the sort of, sort of nugget you'd whisper in her ear? I think that when I started, there was some level of being scared of doing this work, of being that this is not, you know, I saw people that didn't look like me do this work, usually white male organizers, and I always had to really prove myself. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I would tell myself then, you're supposed to be here. You're supposed to doing this work. Um, this, This is meant for you and you're meant for this. So I think that would be something that I would say. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's so wonderful. And every single person listening to this who's younger and unsure should probably take that lesson too, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. <laughs> Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Amanda Tattersall and Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We're also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast Follow us on Twitter at Changemakers99 and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.